This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Dan Beekler from Corona, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks, so good to be here. So you've heard this podcast before, as we just uh, discovered uh, in our conversation. So um, I'm, I'm always, it's always good to have someone on who's heard previous episodes and has a sense of uh, the type of conversations we have here. But, you know, I'm curious to learn about how you got interested in food. So why don't we start there? What made you get interested in the business of food? Well, I, I've always really loved food, which is one of the things that that led me to your podcast and was was very helpful as I was starting to to dive into the food business and start a company. Um, but yeah, I've I've always been very passionate about my about food. I grew up between the U.S. and Europe, so I grew up with sort of not the typical American food culture and experience, and I didn't come to really realize and appreciate that until a bit later. Um, but I've also always been very passionate about sustainability and sort of understanding more about the intersection of those two things has really led me to where I am today and starting Karana. Uh, and that's been a more interesting journey for me, I think, uh, really connecting where food is coming from with, you know, where our values are and, and how we should be producing and consuming food. Yeah, and so why Corona? Uh, can you tell us what it is? And um, I'm, perhaps I'm assuming a lot of uh, listeners may have uh, never heard of the brand before, but um, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you had in mind when you got started and what the company is now. Sure. Well, we're relatively new. Uh, so we're actually based in Singapore, uh, and we're in the market in Singapore and Hong Kong in food service. But essentially, we make meat from whole plants. So our approach is really taking a very ingredient-focused approach to, to making plant-based meats. We're starting with jackfruit, um, and we've, we've zeroed in on that because it's such an interesting crop from a farming standpoint. Uh, so we basically believe in three things. We believe that food should be, you know, more sustainable. And that means more sustainable for the people growing it, for the communities where it's grown, for the planet and the soil itself. Uh, we believe that it should be better for consumers, so healthier. 
uh, and we believe that it should be delicious and offering an amazing experience and accessible. Um, and accessibility means price, but also means formats that consumers are really excited about. So what we do is we start by identifying, you know, categories of, of meat and ingredients where we can come up with some really interesting products and then turn them into the most delicious and accessible formats possible. So right now we're making a pork from jackfruit. Uh, and then we turn that into more value add, ready to cook type products to make it as convenient and as turnkey as we can. So we're making a line of, of dumplings and dim sum products to start. Uh, and we're, we're getting those launched uh, at the moment. And uh, then we'll be ranking a whole range of convenience focused products. And you started the company in Singapore. Uh, I'm, I, I know jackfruit is a pretty common ingredient in most parts of Southeast Asia. So was that the reason why you initially picked jackfruit? Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it was a combination of, I've spent a lot of my career uh, in Southeast Asia. So a lot of what, what drove me to, to this industry in the first place, I mean, I come from more of a finance and consulting background, but I was doing a lot of work on a variety of agriculture related projects. So spending a lot of time in the field with farmers, you know, looking really at the source of a lot of the issues in our food production system. So as we were looking at you know, what we wanted to work with in terms of ingredients and crops, it was really important that it would have this positive impact, that it was uh, a crop that was good to grow, that could be grown um, in a regenerative and soil friendly way, a crop that was, you know, not having a detrimental impact in terms of being taken away from communities. So something where there's a lot of bioavailability, uh, where there's a lack of commercialization or, or wastage. So jackfruit has a lot of wastage in the supply chain. It's a very abundantly grown and available crop in a lot of markets in South and Southeast Asia. So we source from Sri Lanka right now, but it grows all over the region. And a lot of it is just not getting to market. So there's a lot of lost income opportunity. Uh, there's just a lot of inefficiency. Um, so that's very important for us in terms of what we look at using, tapping into what's already there and not <laughs> being being commercialized effectively. Uh, and then of course, looking at the, the health and product implications. So, you know, is this providing a net positive for consumers on a health standpoint? Can we use this without doing a lot of, you know, twisting and manipulation to the ingredient? Can we, you know, stay true to the integrity of the ingredient and deliver it to market in a way that is delivering that whole plant benefit and experience? Uh, and then can we make it delicious and into interesting products? And jackfruit has this naturally fibrous texture. Uh, a lot of people think of it, you know, as the, the classic pulled pork, which is a great way to enjoy it. And it's used traditionally in Sri Lanka and in Indonesia and India all across the region as well uh, in a lot of really interesting and delicious formats. But because of that texture and just because of the properties, there's a lot more you can do to, to really bring out this meaty fibrousness and incorporate into a range of applications. So we look at then all the things we can take it and turn it into. Yeah. So, uh you know, how much of your product is uh, merely jackfruit with, um, let me rephrase that. I know there are a few companies that do have um, jackfruit-based, plant-based meat alternatives um, products on the market right here in the U.S. as well. Uh, most products that I've come across, um, and, and maybe it's because they don't, haven't shared more details around how they pr produce it, most products tend to be jackfruit in its in its natural form with some flavors added to it or some some sauces and spices is is that what you're doing as well or is there another layer of 
um, I don't want to necessarily use the word processing because that automatically implies we've done something <laughs> bad to it. But what I mean by that, is there another layer of enhancement that you're doing to the jackfruit uh, to make it more meat-like? Because jackfruit can be meat-like, but it does, you know, in my experience consuming jackfruit, it does not always have the right texture. Um, and so it isn't a real one-to-one replacement. It is a, it is similar uh, is and and with the right amount of uh, seasoning, you can you can make it really good. Exactly, and I mean, so jackfruit, you know, on its own again has this natural sort of fibrous stringiness, and so you can, and and companies are doing that, packaging that, and flavoring it, and and that can be, you know, a product for some people to enjoy. But a lot of the issues around how that's packaged make it uh, difficult to bring out really the best texture. I mean, you really have to put in a lot of effort and and a lot of times how it's processed uh just doesn't bring out the the natural best elements of, of jackfruit as a crop and as an ingredient so we're actually i think we're 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 a level different as we're very involved like i said i've spent a lot of my career in south and southeast asia uh close to the source and and that's that is very deep within our team. So we spend a lot of time upstream. We spend a lot of time on the supply chain, on the processing. We have our own ways of working with um, the the crops and ingredients at all levels. And we do take it a level further, both at the source and and with what we do to to put into the finished products to really take it into this meat-like territory. Um, And we've also, you know, been developing and responding to consumer demands as well. Initially, we were very focused on, you know, keeping that, you know, that term of processing is a dirty word. And what's driven my interest in this space and and doing something in a different way is really about celebrating those ingredients and and keeping that purity. But it's also about understanding what consumers want and and what, you know, needs are in the market for certain products. So it's finding that balance. You know, I think our, our brand and our values are all about bringing balance to our food system and finding that balance of working with it in a way that it is accessible and it is a product that people want to consume because it's a great crop that we should be consuming a lot more of um, and finding, you know, ways to bring out everything that will get people to consume it. So yeah, we turn it into a meat, we bring it into formats that are really familiar to people um, where, and especially for chefs where it's intuitive and easy to cook with. And we try and make that experience of working with jackfruit as foolproof and as easy and as you know delicious as possible. And you initially launched in a few uh, restaurants in Singapore, uh, if I'm not mistaken. How did that um, experience, how has that experience been? And you know, can you give us a sense of what the chefs in those restaurants did with the products? Because, you know, while it is, jackfruit is pretty common in Southeast Asia, I do think uh, what the the what you what you've done to it may have pr- pr- provided them with an opportunity to maybe take it to another level that they hadn't done before. So, would love to hear more about what they've actually been able to do with your products. Yeah, well, that's that's. I mean, one of the many favorite parts of my job is is working with really amazing chefs and and seeing what they're able to. Because I mean, especially the initial formats of our product really meant to to keep it as kind of a blank canvas that chefs could work with and interpret. And a lot of our development of the product and and growth has come from you know seeing what those chefs are doing, understanding the culinary elements of it, and feeding that back. We're very culinary centric and driven company. Um, and I mean, really it's, it's incredible to see everything from, uh, in Singapore, we had a, a no which is a very traditional, uh, pork 
it's it's a sausage like it's a ground pork roll that's very commonly eaten. Uh, it's in, it's very common Peranakan dish to so this uh, Chinese Malaysian fusion cuisine that's that's uh, very prevalent in Singapore. So very traditional uh, that's served at Candlenut, which is a Michelin star Peranakan restaurant in Singapore. Chef Malcolm Lee is very well known. So to see his interpretation of that and and it going into such a you know deeply known and appreciated dish with very high expectations is something quite cool. Uh, we've also had chefs use it uh, in local dishes like a rendang there. Uh, we're in the market in Hong Kong as well, where it's been localized in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, and But there's there's a wide variety of, of cuisines and, and dishes that it can go into. So we encourage a lot of that creativity. Um, we also then have product lines like our dumplings, where it's steered in a very set direction and given a very specific profile and we see a lot of positive response on that as well wow that's exciting and uh, you mentioned that your products are sourced from sri lanka um and i, I do want to get into that in a in a bit but but when you your your when you convert it into your end products are you doing the manufacturing or the processing uh, quote-unquote processing is it in singapore where you actually where's your facility where you're actually putting together the products so our products that we have in Singapore are made in Singapore, and we work with the, with the local manufacturer there to, to make the final products. Uh, and we, I mean, we've designed our supply chain. Like I said, we're very involved throughout all elements um, of, our, of our value chain, and we like to stay very close, you know, from the source to, to the end products. Um, so we've designed it in a way to, again, we have to, to work with the base ingredients like the jackfruit on a certain level in order to, to reduce waste. But we look to build sustainability um, and efficiency into our, our supply chains and logistics as much as possible. And that is something that has been helpful now as, as supply chains are quite messy and really stretched. And having more of that ownership in the supply chain has, has been a huge uh help for us uh, as we look at coming into a market like the U.S. and we're about to set up local production in California in the Bay Area here to get going and, and our ability to, to really make products and localize, I think, feeds into that culinary mm -hmm. approach where we can really adapt to local flavors, work with local chefs and incorporate that feedback directly. Yeah. And do you foresee that your products are always going to be, I mean, the raw ingredients will be always sourced from Sri Lanka? Is there in... I'm, uh, yeah, what's the size of the availability over there? And would would that, those would the jackfruit from Sri Lanka be supplying your manufacturing facilities both in Asia as well as uh, here in the U.S.? Yeah, no. Right now, we're we're very um, set on growing in Sri Lanka. I mean, there's such an amazing farming story around jackfruit and around other crops and ingredients that you know, we have our eyes on at some point in the future um, that we want to help grow and, and, and share. Um, but we're also always looking at how we can localize and adapt supply chains and looking at ingredients beyond jackfruit in the future, uh, where we can source things all over. I mean, I think at the end of the day, food should be local and decentralized as much as possible and finding ways to support the types of crops and ingredients that can support that kind of food system, the food system we should be moving towards and finding ways where we as a brand can support that and obviously scale it. I mean, yeah. to, to really be impactful in the space, you have to scale. And so again, that idea of balance, balancing scale with a good, you know, sustainable food system, that is what we need to be moving towards, not just 
finding a less bad version of what we already have. Um, that's what we want to be supporting. So where that journey takes us, we will see, but we're always looking at new opportunities, new markets, and, and where we can have an impact on the sourcing side. Yeah. And in terms of the growing jackfruit, is that something that can be done in the U.S.? So is that, uh, I, as far as I know, it's not grown in the U.S., but maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit more. There, I mean, there's a little bit. It's not grown widely. It needs a very tropical mm -hmm. environment, so it needs a lot of moisture. Jackfruit's a very interesting crop because it can be a very low-maintenance, hands-free crop. In Sri Lanka, it's often you know, grown on these wild plots in the forest where the jackfruit itself is not being really looked after. It just sort of grows and is there and what's needed is taken. Uh, in Sri Lanka, it's actually illegal uh, to cut down a jackfruit tree. You need special permission. You have just huge amounts of wild and, and somewhat uh, managed is not the right word, but, you know, cared for jackfruit. Um, but usually it's part of a mixed plot that's growing a variety of other things. So, um, you know, jackfruit itself uh, is often under underappreciated or underlooked at. Um, in the U.S., uh, we would look to, to sort of bring that model here at some point if it works. Um, I think in the Caribbean, there's a lot of huge opportunities uh, in Florida, there's a little bit of jackfruit growing in Hawaii, um, but all in any tropical environment, there's opportunities for jackfruit. And as a crop that can fit into a variety of existing farmings that can support a biodiverse, you know, low maintenance farming operation, it's a very interesting opportunity. But I think that will take some time as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously. Um, in terms of your plans in uh, the U.S., because you mentioned that you're you're looking to set up a manufacturing facility in the west coast as well what is what what stage are you in terms of introducing the brand to us consumers um and yeah can you tell us a little bit more about your plans to expand out west Absolutely. So, I mean, we're going to be getting set up uh, in San Francisco and in, in Los Angeles to start, and we're going to be, be getting products into the market fairly soon in a small scale. So we'll have a chance for people to start uh, trying out uh, some of our first products here. Um, we'll be taking a similar approach to how we've we've launched in Singapore and Hong Kong. So partnering with really interesting chefs and restaurants. And again, we want to make sure that in the initial forms, people are having a really great experience um, with our products. We'll also be looking to engage with a lot more community-focused organizations and make sure that it's not all, um, you know, there's there's a lot of hype and, and buzz mm -hmm. at the premium side of, of the plant-based space right now. We, again, we're very much about being inclusive and accessible and connecting people, you know, at all areas to eating in a better way, eating in a more conscious way. Um, so we're making sure that we're looking at a very holistic approach to, to the market here, and we're going to do it in a very manageable way. Um, and we want to really connect in the cities we launch in and, and launch city by city, um, because we view this as a very long-term trend. I think there's, there's a lot of noise and a lot of hype in the space right now, and we're really looking to build long-term change and long-term value in space. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, you mentioned right up front about the, I think you mentioned that the, the three things that you value the most, the sustainability, the health of your your products, and then the, the health of the nutrition value of your products, and then the the, the taste, obviously, the deliciousness. Um, on health, I, I agree, it's a bit of a longer term view in generally what's happening in the plant-based space. I think we've 
we've gone through the initial first wave and i think there's there's multiple waves to come and i do think the first wave was was important and it and we needed those you know back to what i mentioned in the beginning whether it's um you know one to one replacements that are just trying really hard to be exactly like meat i think we'll always have room for those products um but i also think that a lot of the consumers who try those products are then more curious to try other plant-based foods and generally become a little bit more open uh, towards uh, shifting their uh, consu- consumption habits towards healthier and healthier options. And right now, when you look at the marketplace, there really there isn't that much. It may seem like we have an overabundance of meat alternatives, but and, and yes, we do, but they're all largely pretty much the same with some exceptions, mm-hmm. right? So they're all kind of going for that same little segment that is looking for an exact, exact replica of meat. And I think, again, that's needed. We love those brands and we love those products, but but there's a lot more room in the plant-based uh, space um, and a lot more, you know, you, you're the same consumer who's choosing to eat um, a burger that is giving them exactly the sensory and taste uh, experience as meat is now more open for another meal to perhaps try a jackfruit alternative. As, as So I definitely see that the market is very early and it's maturing and, and we have a long way to go. Um, in terms of your plans in the U.S., are you looking to launch the same products that you currently sell in the in Singapore? And, and what would those products be? What, what should people be keeping an eye out for? So, yeah, and I, I completely agree with you uh, that, you know, this market is going to continue to evolve, that we're in a very early stage of it. And, and I think where we're very focused is, again, meeting the market where it is, uh, always sort of pushing the boundaries and, and, and growing with the market. Uh, and right now, I think the market is looking for familiarity. I think we are looking for those products that we recognize and we know how to work with them. We know what they should uh, hit in terms of a flavor profile and texture experience. Um, so we are looking where we're very ingredient focused, where we deliver products to customers very much around, you know, meeting their expectations and exceeding their expectations. Um, so how we marry those two things and how that evolves is sort of the question for us. Uh, in the U.S., we will be launching some uh, slightly different products. So we've had a lot of time over the last uh, 18 months to really focus on product development um, and and take some of the feedback in, in our first markets and, and make some improvements to the products. And so we're really excited where we have it now. But some of that is also responding to certain consumer feedback. So like our, our new products were on the nutrition side. I mean, we've really been focused on the, the whole plant element and, you know, pieces like fiber and things where, where jackfruit brings a really interesting element that is often missing from from our nutrition especially here in the u.s um but consumers are still very conscious about protein so making sure that we are meeting those expectations and things like that and meeting that meat-like experiences is something that's very important to us at this stage so we're going to be launching um with both our our plant-based pork uh so jackfruit-based pork in the food service uh world. So launching through restaurants, uh, through a variety of formats there um, to 
to give that experience through the chefs and to connect with chefs. Um, in terms of retail, we're going to be launching our, our dumplings to start. So we have a line of Kyotsa that we've developed. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a product that we're really excited about that is very close to both my co-founder Blair and my hearts. Um, and has sort of been at the origin of, of what we've thought about in terms of, you know, ideal products that are familiar, but you can do so much with that are universally loved. Um, and build on a line from there around similar, you know, whole plant-based convenience type products. Uh, and that's a space we're really excited about. But as this space grows, I mean, again, it's about really spending the time and putting in the work on the ingredients on the upstream side so that I think the market will evolve and will move away from this needing to eat something that is just synthesizing meat and just being a very familiar to growing and, and expanding into eating a variety of more interesting crops and ingredients and things. And we plan to be very much at the forefront of driving that as well. Yeah, you you brought up protein there, which um, <laughs> I'm sure you get asked this question, but uh, and I wasn't planning to go there, but uh, it, it is an interesting one. It's not one to be dismissed because when people are looking for replacements to conventional meat using plant based, uh, still they want to make sure they're they're, they're getting their regular. Um, dose of protein uh, i call it dose because the, almost people p pretend like we need a lot of protein all the time uh or, or something's going to happen to us so uh, is that a concern is that what, what is your and maybe maybe it's more of a concern here in the u.s versus maybe you can tell me that versus is it, is it also an issue in asia that people need this they want their center of the plate to have a certain level of protein and if they're going to take meat out, they want to make sure whatever they replace it with has that or more protein. So knowing that jackfruit in itself doesn't have that much protein, how, how do you overcome that challenge? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, it's definitely a U.S. topic. I think it's a wealthy nation topic where just there has become this equation of, you know, wealth requires protein and um protein in various forms. And look, I mean, we all need protein. Sure. Protein is an important part of, of, you know, our nutritional uh, requirements, but um, it's not everything. And it tends to take a very front and center position in, you know, what is and is not good for you. And I think it does tend to get very overblown and the data supports that. And, but again, it's, if, if consumers have certain expectations, you need to, to manage that. So we do not, you know, focus on protein at the center. We focus on very holistic. I think in general, we're very overloaded with information and ideas around what is good, what is not good, what is healthy today versus what was healthy three years ago. And I mean, we try and, and simplify and, and distill and say, you know, it's, it's about that balance of health and taste because it has to, it has to hit both. It has to be better for you and taste good. Um, and again, just focusing on, on the ingredients and transparency in our sourcing and, and the benefits of eating jackfruit in its unripe, you know, pure form offers a lot that is, I think, easy to understand and digest mm -hmm. unintended. Um, Whereas there's a lot of discussion around, you know, very specific areas of functionality. And there's a lot of things that you can look into in terms of jackfruit, the fiber, the low glycemic index potential. There's some really interesting happening around diabetes. But 
what consumers take from that and what consumers focus in on, I think, is very much focused on things like protein, but I think needs to move to more holistic, you know, this is, is this good for me or not? People, I think, are looking for transparency increasingly these days. So we try and really focus in on that. We try and really simplify the messaging. And it's, again, it's about feeling good about what you've eaten. That means it has to be satisfying, but you have to know that what it's doing to your body and where it's coming from is also having a positive effect. How deep people are going to dive into the nuance of that, that varies a lot by, by customers and segments. Um, but for us, it's about, you know, we have to have our, our values and then we have to find a way to translate that into what's going to drive consumer adoption. Yeah, and I think you may have alluded to this earlier, but uh, is uh, I know you're 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 doing jackfruit at the moment, but is is the intention here to try to explore other potential ingredients that maybe fit the similar sustainability slash supply chain criteria that jackfruit does, where maybe there's other other crops out there that there's excessive wastage around that you can convert? Is that the plan? Absolutely. I mean, that's really the core of what we do. It's around, I mean, how consumers interact with us is very much about a, you know, a brand that makes delicious plant-based products. But really what we're looking to drive, the impact we're looking to drive is on that sourcing side, is finding ways to, to identify these ingredients. Um, you know, right now it's a lot about looking in our, our existing food systems and finding those underutilized, uh, under-commercialized ingredients where they're really interesting opportunities um, there's so many crops that are totally ignored that are great for farmers that are, you know, have huge income potential, um, and are good for a lot of interesting applications. And because the supply chains aren't there because no one's really put in the effort, they're largely ignored. I mean, like you were talking about earlier about how so many of the products in the market are the same, you know, the same basic ingredients, same formulations. It's because that's where a lot of the infrastructure is. It's designed to bring these, you know, monoculture commodity crops to market uh, in a very standardized way. And so we're trying to show that you can do things a little bit differently. You can deeper and, and look, you know, deeper down the value chain and, and, make an impact there. Um, but we think that you need to be able to then turn that into familiar formats. And so you can't continuously introduce, at least not yet, maybe at some point, but continuously introduce new crops and expect them to be in ingredients and expect them to be just, you know, adapted overnight. So it's about finding that balance to, to find those ingredients and figure out what we can do with them to really deliver products that that people want to eat yeah so so what's next in terms of uh your expansion obviously early days for you but i'm assuming next steps are you're if you're not already actively talking to distributors and trying to get in front of buyers uh doing the trade show circuit perhaps what's uh you're at that fun stage of, of <laughs> launching a company so tell us a bit more about that we always like to take on a little bit more than we can actually handle. I mean, so we're now, you know, entering into our, our third market as a very small company. But again, I think how we do it is about really connecting deeply with consumers. So we find places where we can sit as close to consumers as possible. So yes, we're, we're engaging in all those discussions and we're, we're at various points through various pieces of that, um, you know, focusing on scaling and, and improving our production is always a priority. Um, focusing on uh, getting in those really 
interesting first channels where we're going to, you know, really establish ourselves. So we've been very focused on our launch markets in Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, we've had, you know, great launches there with some really amazing restaurants and brands now looking at growing those entering into the retail markets there, uh, and taking a similar approach in the U S So really, you know, having a, a really impactful launch where we can, you know, focus on a couple of cities where there's a lot of interests and, and cool stuff happening in the space, um, and really, you know, get established there and then, then grow and scale from that point. Yeah. And are you thinking a mix of both food service and retail here in the U.S. to begin with, or are you looking at one channel first? We'll start with food service, but we're looking to move to retail fairly soon. As I mean, that's that's been uh, something we've been working on for a long time, and again, we're just really happy with where we have the the first product we're going to launch, um, and really excited to to get it out there. So probably in a fairly limited scale. I mean, it, we're not looking to go nationwide from day one, um, but yes, definitely looking to accelerate retail yeah. in the near future. And why the name Karana? Can you tell us what what the word? I'm assume, assuming it is the Sanskrit word Karana. That, that it is. It is. is. So it, well, there's actually there's a couple of different. Um, there was one of those uh, things that there were, there were so many different meanings um, to, two in particular. So there's the Sanskrit and Hindi word uh, to do or doing. Um, and so, you know, one of our core brand thing, uh, brand elements is, is about making good choices, taking those actions, you know, just doing things uh, and doing things in a positive way. And then uh, the other uh, meaning of Karana comes from a Balinese phrase, Trahita Karana, which is about uh, achieving prosperity through balance with spirituality and nature. Um, so especially that, you know, bringing balance into our food system, you know, having more of a balanced relationship with nature, having more balance in our diets, uh, that's very much at the center of our values and what we do as well. So, and then, I mean, the other thing is, I think I've spent a lot of my career in Southeast Asia. We have a very, you know, deep ties through our Singapore uh, base and and our, our company presence in that region, our sourcing story, uh, how a language like Hindi has sort of evolved and transformed and turned into a lot of the languages spoken throughout the region. It just it just yeah. felt very right to, to incorporate a lot of those elements and, and traditions into the brand. Yeah, it's going to be fun to build out a, 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 a it's a challenge, obviously. I, mean, I say fun as if that's, uh, I actually literally mean fun. There's elements of fun in it, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be a huge challenge f to build out a, a new brand in this category. Uh, again, but I also think there's a lot of room for innovative thinking right now, because as we said earlier, everyone, you know, someone leads the way and then everyone follows and does the same thing. And then if you just wait long enough and you're patient enough, you can you can change the conversation because people are then ready for a, a new message, a new look, a new new story of a brand. So that's, you know, and you can't make it up. It has to be authentic. But at the same time, it's all about um, communicating to consumers the, the core values of what you stand for. And then, of course, relying on the food to do the rest. Uh, the food has to be good, obviously. Exactly. And I think that's that's one of the the learnings for us and something that that we're very focused on is, you know, we have our own values internally, you know, what we'll use in terms of ingredients and what we want to achieve in terms of various points of impact and, and health claims, but then what actually gets translated to the, the consumer facing piece of the business, you know, can be very, it has to be very distilled and, and 
very straightforward. So a lot of it is, is living and owning your values, even though that doesn't always get recognized and celebrated to the full extent and being able to, to focus in on, on what are the key things, because ultimately it is about having an impact and, and how we have an impact and, you know, expand the values that, that we want to adhere to is by getting people to, to buy and, and love our products. So that's the most important thing at the end of the day. And we have to, you know, sometimes that means that people will celebrate our values. Sometimes that means that we just have to quietly own that. But yeah. <laughs> um, as long as we're doing what we're, what we're trying to do, we're happy. Yeah. Um, well, if you've heard this podcast before, this question will not surprise you. Although I've been not as consistent with asking it lately as I've been having all kinds of conversations this year, especially on this podcast, but I'm going to go back to asking it, which is, you know, when when you build out Karana into the company you want it to be, and um, you know, all of us in this movement to try to get people to change the way they're eating and to make changes in the food system, however incremental it is, um, hopefully we're all going to be successful, and the work we're going to do is going to amount to something. If you look ahead of the world, uh, to the world in the year 2050, what does that look like to you in terms of the food system, in terms of what Karana is? And it doesn't have to be about Karana. It can just be about what your, what your hopes are for the food system in the year 2050. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think, I mean, we're always trying to balance that long-term view of where everything is going with what we need to do in the immediate term to get to the next stage. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, I'm very positive ultimately on where I see there's a lot to, to be frustrated and concerned about in the world right now, but ultimately I think there are so many people working to improve things and increasingly people in governments are starting to, to wake up to this. And I think that, I think a lot of there's a lot of the conversation is focused around, you know, will things happen? Will people make the right choices? And the half of the conversation we forget is that it's not entirely up to us. Like this is an existential issue. You're seeing this happening with our current resources around water and uh, the price of, of meat and the availability supply chain shortages around the world. I mean, this is only going to continue and, and worsen. So our food system will absolutely shift. It has to, and it has to shift. If it's not going to collapse entirely, it has to shift to a way that is, again, it's not just about going vegan and plant-based. It's about fundamentally looking at how we produce food. Who is that? Who grows our food? What is What are the farming conditions? What is required? Um, our crop selection, what we eat, when we eat it, where it's coming from, all this has to change. And I think we are, you know, entering into a period now where we are moving back a bit more towards a localized um, world in general, which has both good and bad elements. But I think that will definitely happen in our food. And I think we will become more local in what we eat. We'll have to, we'll have to become more, we need to move to a more balanced regenerative farming model. Uh, we need to eat a much wider variety of, of, different crops and plants. We need to um, be much more conscious about where our food is coming from. And I think there's so many, I think this is going to be, we're just in the very early stages. I think how this industry is going to evolve. We don't know exactly how that's going to look, but I think there's going to be, we, we tend to think that we don't change our food habits as drastically as we do. I mean, if you look at Things like, uh, I mean, just how the craft beer industry evolved over a decade, not too long ago. I mean, where it was from when I started college, it was very limited. 
now it's amazing just the the amount of of brands and and the quality and caliber around the world um and that's been repeated with i mean our food our diets what we eat how we eat has changed so much and not always i mean we've had dips but but for the better i think more recently as we get more conscious and i think that will continue so i think we're going to be looking at a very different food world a very different world in general probably before 2050 um but i think it's going to be i don't think there's any one size fits all solution i mean food is a deeply personal complex uh and dirty business at the end of the day and it won't be completely disrupted by one or two technologies. It needs to be something that we need to work within the existing frameworks to really shift things. Uh, and we need to incorporate a lot of new developments that are coming. And there's some really exciting things, but I'm, I'm excited for, for whatever it will be. Yeah, I like that you you hold a much uh, broader perspective on it, which is we have to be open to uh, hybrid models that maybe don't neatly fit into the existing frameworks. In fact, if we try to squeeze everything into the existing framework, we we firstly will not make too much of an impact. Um, and so while we need to do some of that, and I think some of that will just naturally happen because there's, you know, the alternatives to conventional meat, dairy, and other products are going to just get more and more popular, it doesn't mean there's not room for us to think outside the lines, outside the box, and uh, explore opportunities to... Uh, find ways how we can help parts of the world, at least, you know, local also is a pretty confusing word to some people, maybe regional opportunities, uh, finding yeah. ways in which we can be more and be more uh, self-sufficient, more resilient as we continue to face the realities of climate change. Uh, and hopefully we can adapt in time to, to be in a much better place by the year 2050. So, Dan, it's 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 been a real pleasure um, catching up with you and talking about Karana and the work you're doing. Good luck with everything that's next. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place the elites in charge say everything's fine stop noticing but you know better and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos my patriot supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company americans trust to prepare go to mypatriotsupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com